Hello and welcome to this episode of Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Will Millership with the Scottish AI Alliance, and today I'm joined by two professors from the University of Edinburgh to talk about next generation artificial intelligence. So with me I have Professor Subramanian Ramamurthy, Chair of Robot Learning and Autonomy, and Director of the Institute of Perception, Action and Behaviour at the University of Edinburgh. And joining him is Professor Michael Ravatsos, a Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Deputy Vice Principal of Research and Director of the Bayes Centre. So, welcome to both of you. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us today. Great. So I will, I will um, get straight to the questions. Next week, you have a event coming up on next generation artificial intelligence. So I was hoping you could kind of describe to me and our listeners what you mean by the phrase next generation AI. So if we could start with um, Ram, perhaps. Yeah, so uh, the, the way I think about AI, it, uh, the, the, the field has gone through many waves as we, uh, you know, those of us in the field understand it. Uh, every, every decade or so, there has been a new technique or a new paradigm that has come about. But certainly the, the, the longstanding trend across all of these waves is the fact that we are moving towards systems. We no longer talk about AI as an individual component, like a classifier or like a predictor or a regression model. These days we talk about a system for recommendation or a system for making a certain kind of decision on behalf of a person. And that has brought about a number of different considerations that didn't used to be uh, looked at quite so carefully in previous ways of thinking about AI when we were still thinking about the components themselves. Uh, so I would say for, for me, next generation refers to growing up of uh, many of these techniques and engaging much more directly with larger problems, the considerations and requirements coming out of the problems, and then ways in which we are architecting components that fit together. Uh, sometimes uh, this is at the computational level, but sometimes this is at the much higher mod modeling and social technical level. Excellent. Thank you, Ram. Do you have anything to add to that, Michael? Yes. I mean, I would say one thing we've seen in AI in recent years is that individual kind of quite narrow tasks have been solved quite well. So, you know, recognizing uh, things in images, uh, understanding language, spoken language. But what where we're still still struggling is, as Ram was saying, in, in putting those things together. And I think what we want to... Um, discuss and understand with in collaboration with the wider kind of UK AI community is what are the right approaches uh, towards overcoming those roadblocks. Uh, and as some of the listeners will also know, current systems are very data and compute heavy. Uh, we all know we can't keep uh, feeding them more and more data and, and using up more and more energy to um, when we're building and training these systems. So I think in the longer term, if we want to have systems that really do smart things for people, we're going to have to come up with new methodologies for doing that. Uh, and and uh, there are a number of interesting approaches. Uh, for example, people are trying to train models with far less data or to use something they've built for one problem to reuse that on another problem. Um, but these are really uh, ongoing big research challenges that we have by no means solved yet. Thank you, Michael. So to me, it sounds kind of like um, almost a difference between a, a specialized or narrow AI and a more general AI. Is that is that kind of the aim you're going for in terms of this uh, next generation AI? 
So I think one thing that motivates us is this idea of autonomy. So when we talk about AI these days, we, we all have kind of AI in our pockets these days on our mobile phones or, or we use it on the Internet. Um, but very often it operates behind the scenes in terms of, you know, doing performing one very narrow task, you know, finding the right product we want to buy or, or searching for images on the Internet. Um, what where we're struggling is we're struggling to get these systems to do things on their own and on behalf of us or in collaboration with us in the real world. So, for example, we have some robots that can do things in a factory or in the lab, but taking them out there into the real world and really trusting them and really uh, trusting that they will do the you know that they will be reliable and and won't make mistakes. That's really a big challenge. It doesn't always mean that these systems will be very general. They may be very specialized. Uh, you know, you could imagine a specific system on your mobile phone just to help you track your health or a uh, an assistant that helps you deal with your email. You know, some of these tasks can still be quite um, uh, specific. But I think we need to at least get to the point where we use these technologies um, in the same way in which we rely on others that are deployed in the real world. So, uh, and, and, and that's still very hard at the moment. No, I see. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I guess it's about kind of this making sure it's um, safe and tested in the right environments um, to into those, to put into real world um, positions. So uh, over to you, Ram, kind of what techniques do you think are going to be the most important within the next five to 10 years to help us achieve this kind of next generation artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's a very interesting question that, uh, you know, we are, we are asked this all the time. And I think each academic you meet will kind of rattle off their favorite techniques because they're working on them. Uh, but I prefer to address your question a, li a little bit, uh, you know, from a different direction by thinking about what are the problems that definitely must be solved. So let me take two examples. Well, uh, and these are both examples that I have worked on and many others would have their own favorite applications. So one application domain is autonomous vehicles, which is a kind of proxy for just about anything about deploying robots in the real world. In the, in the domain of autonomous vehicles, uh, the first thing that strikes you is that uh, there's no way to talk about driving without talking about other people and other agents and the ways in which you interact with them. If nothing else, even on an empty road, there are conventions that you must follow. You, know, you have to stop for the light. You have to kind of watch out for uh, you know where you can park and where you can drive and so on. And then as soon as other people are around, you have to do a much more tight interaction. What this really means is that you are in what we call an open world. So there's no complete description that I can give you of, of, of such a world, uh, you know, th that fits into any tractable model that anybody can kind of conceptualize and use in this way. Um, and in these open worlds, finding edge cases, which is, you know, what are those peculiar corner cases that you never thought about when you first designed the system, is going to be the limiting factor for can you deploy the system or not? Uh, you know, would you ever trust this system? And so a question that somebody, uh, you know, deploying such a system has to answer, no matter which way they, they design their AI, is how do you find these edge cases? How do you quantify risk with respect to them? And then how do you come up with decision-making strategies that are safe with respect to these kinds of risks? 
Um, now, each person has their own approach to this. Some people say the way to think about edge cases is to do synthetic data generation and do simulation. Other people say what you must do is to kind of leverage big compute and kind of deploy lots and lots of parallel systems like an ARM farm. And yet other people say the only way to do this is to have human interaction. And I think the jury is out about you know how much of which of these you need, but you, you definitely need all of these things and you have to think about all of this. Uh, if I can give a second example, uh, I mean, let's consider what happens with, uh, you know, uh, AI that's being used in the context of, let's say, medical diagnostics or trying to understand uh, your, your disease state and health state. Um, there are very interesting uh, considerations about the extent to which you want to use existing prior knowledge. So if you think about, you know, the domain of biology and medicine, we are talking about centuries of carefully accumulated you know, very detailed uh, studies that give you exactly how the body works, or at least how much we understand about how the body works. It would be a bit foolish to embark on building AI, which kind of ignores all of these theories, and then just says, I have some data, so I'm going to model this data. So a big question is, how do you combine existing understanding, which might be in different formats from the data that you observe from a microscope or from an image, and, and how do you kind of bring them together? So this becomes questions such as physics-informed neural networks, which is a personal favorite of mine these days. But it also kind of uh, you know goes into how do you want to do adaptive uh, approaches to collecting data better so that uh, you know, you kind of only spend your experimental budget on places where it must be spent. Uh, and uh, here again, there are questions about, you know, uncertainty, quantification, and trying to understand the error characteristics. Excellent. Thank you for the answer. Um, yeah, as as you mentioned, there's lots of, you know, it depends who you ask and you get different answers from every scientist. So, Michael, what's your what's your take on the techniques of the future for next generation AI? So I think what we have to, you know, as the systems get more complex, um, I think we have to think about how we're actually going to program them or interact with them. So what I mean by that is once you've once you've mastered a certain skill, um, then you're going to want to use that in, in something more complicated. And then you're probably not going to want to train it from scratch or really even understand how it works in the detail. Um, you know, when uh, just just think about how a child learns, you don't, uh, you know, if a, when a, when a toddler learns how to walk and then they learn how to carry things, they don't reconsider how the walking works, but they may adapt it, for example, if they carry something very, very fragile or something very heavy. Uh, and I think we have to think about what that means when we're building these AI systems. So um, do we uh, go back to basics and and really try to understand all the bits we are reusing, or can we deal with them just just like we would deal with with components in other things that we engineer? You know, you you buy the engine for the aircraft. Of course, you have to understand how it works to to build it into the aircraft. But you're not going to go back to the original design of the of the of the engine uh, that's been done by other engineers. So I think I think that's that's a very um, important element, and I I predict. I mean, it's always very hard and dangerous to make predictions, but I predict that a lot of that will not necessarily be programming. So what we will be looking for are kind of natural ways to um, uh, 
you know, in the in the in the most extreme sense, even ask these components what they can do, and tell them, instruct them how they should adapt to the task in hand. In fact, the 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 pilot projects we're working on now, uh, one that Bram is working on in particular, uh, uh, is really about you know how do you take an AI assistant that has some capabilities and instruct them, for example, to learn new tasks and say, you know, you need to do this a bit differently because, you know, in this particular example, there are different constraints. There is maybe there is maybe um, the objects you're working with are different, uh, but but, you know, it has enough understanding that uh, you can give these instructions, whether that will be through language, through other types of interfaces, through observation of a human and trying to mimic what a human is doing, we don't know. Um, but but I think there are a lot of researchers around the world who are working on, on trying to use these um, mechanisms that we have for other intelligent systems to, um, to build those into AI. I, I think it's also interesting to look at how, I mean, we should not try and suggest that these AI systems will be like humans. I think we, we should always be quite careful about that. But but humans quite often use other tools or even, uh, for example, I like the, the, the example of animals um, who are very different from humans, but we can kind of adjust them to what we need within some boundaries. And in the process, we also adjust ourselves, right? When you learn how to ride a horse, a horse is a very useful um, tool for doing certain things, we as a as as it's as the rider, you you don't know how to do that when you're born, but you can learn how to use it appropriately and safely. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I like those those analogies a lot, especially about the children kind of walking and how they adapt, and you know the the importance of communicating with the AI. That's something that we perhaps don't don't think about as much, beyond just kind of like a you know reward function. But um, yeah, so you both kind of mentioned uh, autonomy and um, it sounds like kind of complex reasoning tasks um, in this next generation AI. So when these kind of actions come out into the real world, um, they probably pose some risks. And I kind of asked, wanted to ask you both, what do you think some of the main risks of a next generation AI might be? And what are some of the key ways that you'll, you, know, you think might be, we may be able to uh, reduce these risks or avoid them completely. Um, let's start with Ram again. Yeah, so this is becoming more and more of a consideration as we have, you know, systems being deployed in the wild, as it were. So, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't be asking these questions because very few systems were being used at this level. Um, the first risk, I think, comes from the fact that we are thinking about compositionality in the way that Michael envisioned it. So we're going to have uh, systems that have been designed to do specific tasks that have been picked up by others and, and built upon uh, and then presented to others in a carefully packaged way. Simplest example, think about an app or a, you know, some kind of a website that packages you know, detection and object recognition kind of tasks. And the website designer or the app designer might not even fully know how this thing works. This means they might not have thought through all the assumptions that were made, and if they were misusing it in some way or misinterpreting that information, uh, these layers of uh, abstraction would obfuscate all of that, and the end user may not actually know. Uh, 
this is where a lot of the the current discussion around bias around kind of what we call out of domain generalization or lack thereof uh, or even various kinds of risks in the autonomous system setting this is where it, it often comes from that uh, you know the full system behavior has additional emergent properties that aren't obvious from the component and sometimes you know, people haven't even thought through how they compose. Um, so, so I think that that's a very big issue. Uh, the, the second issue that comes up uh, has to do with specification gaps. Even when people have thought carefully about it, what an autonomous system does at the technical level differs from what a, a kind of human end user might want uh, in a, as a kind of broad social technical humanistic level. Um, so, for instance, you know, how much risk am I willing to take is, is an entirely subjective and human matter that has to be kind of part of a social conversation. But at some point it has to be translated into probability tables that can be entered into a system so that it can make decisions on the fly. And there will always be some of these gaps. Uh, and the gaps are not just in the fact of uh, can we measure something, it's also in how do you describe these systems and what they do and what the considerations are. Uh, so this is clearly a risk because oftentimes the, the systems, once they become automated, uh, they're being used as kind of a, a swap and replacement for a person who used to fill in the blanks. And the lack of all the other things that the person did, all the blanks that were being filled, is a, is a huge social risk. Um, and finally, of course, I mean, uh, there, there's the factor that once you have automated systems that can be replicated for very low cost, uh, if there are any weaknesses in them, you get them multiplied by the number of deployments you have. So if I have a phone and it has a bug, it's no longer one isolated system failing, it's all iPhones in the world failing the same way at the same time. Uh, and as soon as you found one, you can bring the others down. So those sorts of things pose entirely new risks that historically we've not had. I mean, even if you had a building collapse because of some engineering failure, it's one building. It's bad for the people involved, but it's contained. Uh, whereas with emerging ways in which these techniques are being deployed, uh, the scale and the kind of rapid uh, ways in which they can come down are entirely new forms of risks. Thank you, Ram. And Michael, do you have anything to add to those in terms of risks and risk um, avoidance? I mean, I, th I think a lot of there is obviously a lot of public debate about this and people are very concerned. Uh, but I think a lot of the risks that uh, we are seeing emerge are quite often around actually not a, a diligent and, and responsible approach to managing risk being implemented before you deploy the technology. Um, so I'm, you know, in in the autonomous systems context, for example, you know, self-driving cars or, or, or robots and, and prosthetic devices and things that actually exist physically in the physical world, I think in some ways even worries me less because we know that very um, rigorous testing, safety and validation regimes will be put in place before any of that technology is licensed. Um, where we have seen big problems arise are, is more in the area of software, where um, you know it is very easy for companies and and you know a lot of criticism here has been uh, aimed at uh, big tech companies. Um, a lot of things can be introduced behind the scenes 
where you only see the impact on aggregate. Uh, you don't see any one big thing happening that is, you know, a big problem. But but you see that on aggregate there is a negative impact on on society or on the on the safety uh, of of people, uh, you know, in social media, in fake news, in in algorithmic fairness, and so on. Um, but I think largely, I think this is also associated to the kinds of things that Ram was talking about that very often the the methodology of engineering these systems is relatively poor people are tempted to use data sets and algorithms to do something that sounds like a good idea and release it into the wild that's particularly easy in the world of software and in the world of the internet or, or mobile phones and so on and uh, and worry about the problems that could arise less so i'm pretty convinced that if we embed a culture there where you actually think about what is the specification of what we would like this thing to do and and then actually be critical about does it achieve its objectives and what are the safeguards that I've put in place to make sure it achieves its obje objectives. Um, you know, if, if we have these engineering methodologies, uh, we, we can avoid a lot of uh, a lot of the risks. One risk that is hard to anticipate, genuinely hard as with any new technology, is what happens once people use the technology. I think it's fair to say that we have seen this in many other areas. Um, it's one thing to build the technology. It's another one to see what happens in society when it gets used. Yes, yeah, certainly. It's kind of, you know, you make any tool, it depends whose hands it is, you know, depends how it gets used at the end of the day. Um, so I think that moves on nicely to our next question. And um, I think I'll start with Michael on this one as you're um, uh, a member of the leadership team of the Scottish AI Alliance. Um, so yeah, I wanted to pick your brains a bit about Scotland's AI strategy. You know, the three tenants are trustworthy, ethical and inclusive. So I wanted to kind of think, what do these mean to you and how can we ensure that next generation does AI does meet these kind of standards of trustworthy, ethical and inclusive? It's a very, very good question. And, and of course, there are there are many, many uh, aspects to to each of these three um, tenants. Uh, I think in terms of trustworthiness, uh, the there is there are all the aspects we've just discussed around developing the kind of engineering methods and culture uh, in the industry to make sure that the the things we build are are trustworthy. But it is also about public trust, and it is also about awareness and education of of people. I I do feel that still many people are overwhelmed when they are asked to make decisions about you know what they would like as citizens what they would like ai to do or not to do and i think there is sometimes also a danger of confusing ai there with um, digital and data there are certainly we are talking here about technologies that are nowadays used across all sectors of industry and across all parts of public life. So, um, so the trust question is really a question I think we should focus on AI and we, we should be kind of quite careful to identify the risks that are specific to AI um, rather than saying, for example, that you know it, it's just a, a data privacy issue or an issue around protecting children online. Uh, a, a lot of these problems that we see sometimes, they can be exacerbated by AI, 
but they apply to lots of other uh, lots of other um, uh, digital technologies. For the trustworthiness, I think actually the onus is on those who create the technology. Um, I think we have to convince the users, but also governments and and society at large, that that they can trust what what they get. Um, and and that landscape has has changed a lot. I think unfortunately there have been a lot of things that people are unhappy about with this kind of technology. Um, on the inclusion aspect, I think this is this is really a tough one. We when we talk about AI and technologies like that, we invariably talk about high tech. We talk about things that are shaped you often by the more the the most educated the most um well resourced and the most um advanced parts of our society and i think we really need to put a challenge to our academic industry and government leaders to say you know how can we direct the benefits of these new technologies to those who don't have these privileges in our society and uh, and the uh, scottish society is very um, diverse and and we have to make sure that that uh, happens but but i do think there is also an opportunity unlike other technologies and sectors where physical infrastructure you know natural resources and assets that you have as a country are really you know they determine whether you can succeed in an area or not um digital and ai are areas where it's 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 quite democratic you know many people with relatively limited resources can engage with these technologies and use them and even shape them so i do think there's also an opportunity there it is the threshold to entry in those kind of technologies is much lower um than to others if you think about say manufacturing or or natural resources and so on uh, and there are great opportunities around sustainability uh, so can we uh, a lot of these the big challenges that we're facing as a society um, the climate crisis the um, financial crisis the geopolitical crises that we are facing at the moment uh, many believe that the use of new technologies will be will play a key role in addressing those and i would really like to see kind of a, a government and a joint push from government industry and academia to um make to to kind of push for scotland being at the forefront of doing that thank you michael that was a yeah thank great response and to really kind of um interesting stuff around the trustworthiness and and particularly the inclusion inclusion as well and some um you know bright bright uh possible bright futures for what can be the potential of ai and uh what it can be used for so um ram what do you think do you have any kind of anything to add on those three tenets of trustworthy ethical and inclusive yeah yeah michael has done an excellent job of kind of giving the big picture on these topics so i'll add uh, from my perspective as the principal investigator of one of the trustworthy autonomous systems projects this is part of a UK level program, which in, uh, represents a 33 million pound investment uh, across the country, across many projects. 
Uh, and two of these projects, the, the two task nodes, as we call them, are uh, situated in this city um, within Scotland. Uh, and, and they're part of the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics, or at least they're led from the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics. Uh, so within this programme, we are looking very carefully at all aspects of trustworthiness, in particular thinking about trustworthiness in complete systems that represent uh, autonomy and all of the different considerations that we spoke about in the earliest, earlier parts uh, of this discussion. So uh, what's most interesting here is that uh, we already have ongoing activity in which we are bringing together a number of colleagues ranging all the way from uh, you know, the legal profession, thinking about uh, trustworthiness from the kind of legislative and regulatory perspective, uh, from uh, you know, social sciences, from uh, data ethics, and uh, within the computer sciences, uh, you know, technologies ranging all the way from verification and validation to how do you build new interfaces for trustworthiness. So putting all of this together, we are kind of revisiting the entire workflow of how an AI system is put together. Uh, what is very interesting to us from the point of view of trust is that oftentimes people ask questions about a single component of AI, you know, is this classifier good or not? In fact, nobody really cares about that in, in the wild. What people really care about is, you know, will this system do harm to me or not? And the answer to that often rests not so much in the AI component, but in, you know, what kind of data did you choose to use? Whom did you ask questions of? And, and, and kind of, you know, uh, how did you think through what would happen and what recourse people have? And, and uh, so I'm pleased to say that all of these are valid considerations. I mean, at this point in time, uh, you know, we have a number of projects ongoing. You know, Michael's lead, leading one of them, I'm leading one of them. And the, the, the many of our colleagues across Scottish universities uh, are, are thinking directly about these questions. So I would say we are well placed uh, to deliver on this ambition that, uh, you know, trustworthiness, inclusiveness, and all of these considerations are going to be an integral part of how we think about AI in Scotland. Excellent, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ram. Um, yeah, so to, to wrap up, I'd like to kind of ask you a bit more about the event next week, um, the uh, Towards a Vision for Next Generation AI. So what can our listeners and, um, you know, people who are gonna attend, what can they expect from the event? So I, I really, you know, it's in some on some level, it's a bit of a selfish goal, which is to really hear more about, you know, from a from a cross section of of different uh, scientific communities in the UK on, you know, who will all be in their own ways at the forefront of certain subfields within AI um, to see, you know, what what avenues they think we should pursue and where we should focus our resources. You know, the, the longer term plan is to be able to go to um, funders and government and industry and say, uh, look, we, we think we should invest in this, um, uh, in, in the following directions and with a, with a certain type of, you know, collaborative projects we want to do. Um, but it is essential that you bring together kind of a, a range of voices from around the country to um, to really understand where people think that most potential is. So, you know, we, we are driving the activity by kind of projecting our ideas onto the community. But what we really want to find out is what people think and what they see, what they see working, where, where they see the 
greatest challenges. So, so we could we could come up with something that is um, forward looking. I, I should emphasize also that there are many areas in which we need as a country to increase our capability of applying existing um, techniques and expertise to lots of application problems, you know, in health, in finance, in, in climate, uh, in net zero, and so on. Um, but at the same time, if we want to really be the science superpower that we aim to be, we also need to need to think about what's next. So, you know, five years from now, what will be the, the exciting new um, research that comes out uh, of our community that will actually drive kind of the next wave of innovation? Because um, you have to be you have to be aware that uh, it's it's an extremely competitive area internationally, and we want to lead from the front. Sounds like it's going to be a good event uh, there, Michael, with ambitious aims, you know, leading from the front. And that's exactly what we're aiming to do at um, the Scottish AI Alliance. And one of the aims of the Scottish AI Summit, um, which Ram will be attending and leading a panel on. So Ram, um, do you think you can tell us a bit about your panel at the Scottish AI Summit? Uh, the title of which is what does AI offer people as they get older and what is the role of co-design? Yeah, so uh, I'm looking forward to lively discussion in particular because this is not the usual academic seminar, but actually a much more broad-based discussion involving uh, you know, various members of the public and the government. Um, so I'm particularly looking forward to discussing the question of how exactly uh, technologies such as AI and autonomy, how do they get uh, applied in the context of uh, thinking about an aging population? Uh, so here we are also drawing on our existing activity in the Advanced Care Research Center, which is a big new initiative within the University of Edinburgh. And uh, so we're asking the question, uh, you know, what does all this mean to a person who's aging, who's kind of struggling with, uh, you know, living alone or, or living with, uh, you know, emerging disabilities as it happens with aging? Uh, and oftentimes here, the question is not just what can the AI do, but, you know, should it even be an AI versus a person? Uh, and, and if it is going to be, you know, some mix of these two, how do you want to structure the mix? And who gets to determine what the what the structuring is? Um, so, so these are the kind of end user questions that come from that side. And then they, they translate into questions we have to ask as scientists about, you know, if you're building an activity understanding system, how should it be packaged so that the social care sector can actually use it? Um, so I'm looking forward to a conversation at this level of breadth and richness, uh, and I hope that we come away uh, with kind of a, a slightly better understanding of what exactly we should do within the current initiatives we are pursuing. Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much, Ram. That's a, a very interesting issue on kind of healthcare in particular on what's best, an AI, a person, or a mix. We had a we recently had someone on the podcast from NHS Grampian talking about uh, breast cancer screening and you know what were the ethical implications of an AI doing doing it all or whether it should be a kind of mixture of person and machine doing the the screening. I think that's about all we have time for now today. But um, thank you very much for both coming and I'm really looking forward to both of the upcoming events and um, meeting you both in person as well. Thank you. Likewise, thank you for having us.